Good afternoon, everyone. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the keynote session of the Kurdish Studies Conference. Thank you all very much for coming along this afternoon. My name is Robert Lowe, and I'm Deputy Director of the Middle East Centre and co-convener of this conference with my colleague Zainab Kaya here. And I am simply going to say the thank yous very briefly before we hand over for our keynote session. So the thank yous begin with our wonderful organising committee. Uh, we have five colleagues in the LSE Middle East Centre who helped us put this together. So great thanks to Arda Bilgin, Maruf Kabi, Isabel Kaiser, Spira Sofos and Veli Yardegi. We're very lucky to have you all on board in the centre. Thank you for helping us. We would like to say great thanks to our conference sponsors. Uh, we got generous support from IB Taurus, with whom we also run a Kurdish studies publication series and LSE Atlantic Fellows, who also made a generous contribution to the conference, which helped us set up quite a large travel fund, which we were pleased to offer uh, to students and postdocs to help them make the journey to London. So thank you to our sponsors. In addition to IB Taurus, you'll probably have seen we have three other publishers have taken a table at the conference. That's Edinburgh University Press, Afsana Press and Brill, and it's great to have them here as well. A big thank you to Martin Verberdison for coming to give us our keynote presentation. We're very honored to have him here today. At the reception following this, we will have live music uh, from Payman Heydarian. So we're grateful to Payman for coming out to play tonight. I need to say a big thank you to my colleagues in the Middle East Center. Uh, this conference got quite big. We didn't really anticipate it would be this large and it's been a huge team effort to put the whole conference together. So I need to say thank you to Kendall Livingston, to Jack McGinn, Nasreen Arafai, to Noor Al-Bazawi, uh, Seema Chehab, and our colleague Michael Mason, the Centre Director. And indeed the Middle East Centre um, as a whole made a very generous financial contribution as well, without which obviously we could not have run this. I need to say thank you to our volunteer students, uh, to Tabo Huntkeberth and Khaled Alakani, who've also been helping out in the rooms today. Um, and the biggest thank you has to go to the two most important people who are our conference managers, Salma Mustafa Khalil and Nadine Almanaspe, who have done a power of work to bring this together. Thank you. Thank you. And lastly, a huge thank you to all of you. Um, when Zeynep and I decided to put this conference on, we honestly had no idea how many people would apply to speak or indeed would come to attend. We maybe guessed we might get 70, 80. We received nearly 190 submissions for papers, which was extraordinary. Uh, we were able to accept 115 and we have nearly 200 delegates signed up, which is a wonderful testament to the health uh, of, of this field that we're happy to be uh, supporting today. So thank you all so much. Thank you for those of you who are speaking and those of you who've attended as delegates. And following uh, Martin's keynote lecture, please do join us back in the Marshall Building uh, for the drinks reception and the music. I want to hand over to Zainab. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you both. Is my microphone on? Yes. Okay. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the keynote uh, speech, which will be given by uh, Professor Martin Van Burnessen. I'm Zeynep, Zeynep Kaya. I uh, am based at the Middle East Center as a visiting fellow, and uh, but I am actually based in, at the University of Sheffield. Um, and um, we were thinking about organizing an event like this before, you know, before this year, but COVID kind of got in the way. So we were very excited about organizing. And I second what Bob said, we were delighted with the number of uh, people submitting abstracts and and you know the market interest in the conference so which is a sign that the Kurdish studies as a discipline is indeed growing uh, and it's becoming richer and richer richer every year which is great to see uh, so today we are here to uh, listen Martin uh, Van and talk about Kurdish studies development and history of it it's an absolute pleasure and honor to have uh, Professor Martin Brambrunesan here at the LSE uh, to do the keynote speech for the conference. Um, probably most of you are, almost probably all of you, I would say, aware of his work, his uh, contribution to the field, to the study of Kurdish studies over many decades, have informed uh, many scholars from different disciplines, from sociology to anthropology to sociology, politics. So uh, we owe a lot of uh, we owe you a lot in terms of the intellectual contribution 
that you've made to the field, to the development of the field. Um, before I briefly introduce our speaker, just a couple of housekeeping notes. Um, so if you would like to tweet about the event, the hashtag is uh, the uh, tweet hashtag, hashtag LSE Kurdish conference. And also please note that the talk is being recorded. And um, uh, I'm also asked to remind you that at the end of the talk, we'll head back to Marshall Building for the reception and, uh, and the music by uh, Payman Haidari. So um, Martin Van Burnessen is Professor Emeritus of Comparative Studies of Modern Muslim Societies at Utrecht University. He's an anthropologist with a strong interest in politics, history, and philology. And much of his work straddles the boundaries between these disciplines. He has conducted, conducted extensive fieldwork in Kurdistan, including Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Syria, as well as Indonesia and Southeast Asia generally, and has taught on subjects ranging from Ottoman history and sociology of religion to theories of nationalism. He carried out his first field research among the Kurds during two years in the mid-1970s, when access was relatively easy and has frequently visited, revisited the region during the following decades. Martin has published extensively on various aspects of Kurdish society, culture, and history. His work was translated into Turkish, Persian, Arabic, and Kurdish, and is easily available in the countries concerned. Since his formal retirement in 2011, uh, he, is it correct? Yeah. <laughs> you don't mention that. Um, he had visiting professorships in Indonesia and Singapore, as well as Turkey. His publications include Aga, Sheikh, and State, The Social and Political Structures of Kurdistan, Evliya Celebi in Diyarbakir, Mullahs, Sufis, and Heretics, The Role of Religion in Kurdish Society, Kurdish and Ethno-Kurdish Ethno-Nationalism versus Nation-Building States. And he also has edited volumes titled Islam and Politic in Their Turkey, Islam, the Kurds, and many more. So it's a long list, so I'll stop there. Uh, and I will uh, hand the microphone over to you, Martin. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Zainab. Thank you for the introduction. Thank you for the invitation. I feel really honored to be a keynote speaker here at this conference. And I'm astonished to see so many people active in Kurdish studies. When I started my career about 50 years ago, I could not have imagined that. I mean, it's amazing. So I congratulate you for bringing all these people together and showing that Kurdish studies is being recognized now by a major academic institution in a major European, is it still a European country? A major European country. And uh, the range of subjects studied at this conference, it, 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 it's, it, it's mind boggling. Huh? When Kurdish studies began many years ago, it was mainly language, literature, history. But now we find an enormous range of disciplines uh, in the humanities and uh, social sciences. Uh, Veli this morning uh, called this the inaugural LSE uh, Kurdish Studies Conference, which sounds very promising. It sounds like there is a strategy, a plan. There is a potential institutionalization, at least in this form of Kurdish studies, which would be amazing. Uh, so I think many of you who are here now, when you look back by the time you're my age, you may still remember this conference as a major milestone in the development of Kurdish studies and the acceptance, the recognition of Kurdish studies as an academic discipline. It's not the first though. More than 10 years ago, uh, in September 2006, that is how many years ago? 17 years ago? Uh, the Paris Kurdish Institute with the support of the uh, Kurdish regional, Kurdistan region government and the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs organized a large conference which they called the World Conference of Kurdish Studies. That sounds even more ambitious than uh, where they had not as many speakers as here, but no parallel sessions, four days and something like 60 speakers. It was organized differently. The speakers were also perhaps differently, but it was organized by country. It was world. So first, Kurdish studies in France. What does Kurdish studies in France consist of? 
what does Kurdish studies in Germany consist of? Kurdish studies in the USA, Kurdish studies in other countries, which included the Netherlands and one person from Britain at the time, one person from Britain at the World Conference. Uh, and the rest, which was Kurdish studies in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, uh, about half the presenters. And that was amazing. It also showed that Kurdish studies had existed, had been flourishing, invisible to us in the West, but has been existing in Kurdistan of Iraq as well. I could mention a number of other conferences that I've been to, but uh, I think it is best to compare this conference with the first ever conference of Kurdish studies, or Kurdology, as it was then called, in 1934 in Yerevan, organized by the Soviet Academy of Sciences. Uh, Kurdology was then a new word. Uh, some 80 scholars, Soviet scholars participated. I do not know of what level they all were, but they included teachers, but also researchers. Uh, the conference at that time confirmed that the Soviet Union was the only country in the world where Kurdish studies was institutionalized and had formal support of the state. Uh, the subjects discussed were language and literature, history, folklore, very important in Soviet policy, and the application of Kurdish knowledge, knowledge about the Kurds in education, shaping Kurdish Soviet citizens. Comparison between today's conference and the one of 1934 makes me ask a number of questions about Kurdish studies. Well, we, have, we see we have many more different subjects. We have a different type of speakers. In the uh, Yerevan conference, no doubt there were many Kurds among the speakers too. Here, I think the overwhelming proportion of the uh, speakers is of Kurdish background. Um, but looking at them in general, one could in both cases ask why Kurdish studies? And what is Kurdish studies and who defines what Kurdish studies is? What are the uses and purposes of Kurdish studies? In the case of Yerevan, one of the uses was of course carrying out policies, uh, the development of proper citizens according to the Soviet idea of nationalities. Who owns Kurdish studies in the sense of who pays for them? Or more importantly, who sets the agenda? Who decides what are valid and what are perhaps less valid subjects of study? I see Choman, so let me ask, is gender studies a valid? in all circumstances, a valid subject of studies, or are there circumstances where gender studies are perhaps less valid because there are other priorities? And I would certainly ask the same question about class. Is class a valid subject? Uh, I look again, because you're from Iraqi Kurdistan, I remember in 1958, 1959, Iraqi Kurdistan had, Iraq had a land reform. And two years later, the Kurdish movement uh, took on and suddenly the idea of land reform was shelved because at that time, the national struggle had become more important than the class struggle. Uh, we see that sometimes also reflected in scholarship, perhaps even here. Uh, who are the main actors of Kurdish studies? As I'll tell a bit later, most of the beginners of Kurdish studies were people who were consuls, they were travelers, adventurers, they were missionaries, they were people who represented imperial interests in the region. They sought knowledge in order to yeah, surveil, control the, the territory. Uh, from the beginning, they cooperated with Kurdish collaborators, but it was clear that it was these foreigners who defined what was worth studying. And their work was studied and made academically respectable by armchair scholars in the imperial capital, St. Petersburg, later St. Petersburg and Moscow, later still in, even here in London. So 
what is proper in Kurdish studies. I, I myself was confronted at a conference where I thought I'm above criticism, but fortunately I'm not. I gave a presentation about Evliya Celebi, a 17th century traveler, and what he tells us about Kurdistan. And one of my critics said, well, de uh, um, Again, certain discourses are perhaps less acceptable or less necessary in certain circumstances. I mean, things like that may, may happen to everyone who is in the field or is returned to the field and is trying to find his way into the academic establishment. Anyway, the case of Yerevan, who pays it is easily answered. It was the, the Soviet state. Uh, in the case of the conference in Arbil, uh, 17 years ago, it, again, it was two states, but it's uh, different. It was the first, uh, 2007, it's only a few years after the Kurdistan region of, of Iraq had become a viable quasi-state. That was its own income, and there was a lot of hope. And it's obvious that the, the, the government of the Kurdistan region saw this conference also as a way of how to use the Kurdish studies as an ideological tool to, 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 to shape or redefine what Kurdish identity is or how the region should be governed, I imagine. The French, why the French, the, the relation of the French with the Kurdish Institute of Paris is a very complex one. And perhaps I have time to come back to that later. I need, to go because we have not so much time back to my notes. Uh, I said the origin was travelers like the Frenchman Jean-Baptiste Tavernier, who wrote a six volume book that contains much interesting information. One book that is usually considered to be the first work of Kurdish studies. And I, I'm not going to show you that book, but the book that was published 200 years later, uh, Rohat Alakom uh, wrote in 1987 a book on 200 years of Kurdology. It's an amazingly useful and well-informed book, and everyone who is interested in the history should have a look at that. Uh, he, he lets it begin with a missionary called uh, Garzoni, who wrote a grammar, a very simple grammar of the Kurdish language, for use in, in missionary uh, uh, <clears throat> And the missionary approach to the Christians and Muslims of the region. Uh, the famous Russian consul Alexander Jaba, well, he was a consul of Russia, but he was not Russian. He was born in a country that did not exist at that time, born in Poland. And he must have felt, have recognized something among that people that did not have a country that existed. Uh, he was very sympathetic to the Kurds. He collected, at the request of the academics in, in St. Petersburg, he collected manuscripts. Uh, he became a close friend with the Kurdish mullah and wrote notes on all different subjects. Uh, he collected notes on the language, and which later developed into a uh, dictionary. The Journal of the Royal Geographic Society is, I mean, if you go to a library, you have some, some time in your head, Go to that journal. Everything is online nowadays. There are many travel reports by British consuls. Kurdistan, of course, is on the landway to India. For Britain, Kurdistan was an extremely important territory. They were not, not really planning to conquer it in the beginning, although later they did, part of it. Uh, but it was important for the, for the connection with the most important part of the empire. Uh, Britain was really India. That's where all the money came from. This was an appendix, I mean, this, this part of the world. Um, <clears throat> now, the evaluation, well, I have said it. I go to the first beginnings of institutionalization of Kurdish studies in, uh, in Europe. The 1934 conference in, in Yerevan uh, was attended by a Russian emigre who lived in France. Uh, Basil Nikitin. He had been a consul in, in Urmia. He also had collected manuscripts. He had been speaking to a mullah. He had written many notes on various aspects of Kurdish society. Later, he wrote a book 
which he called sociology of the Kurds, but it's mainly a quaint collection of little bits of information. Uh, he and his fellow former diplomat, Minorsky, migrated to France in the 1920s. Minorsky already became appointed as a professor of Persian in the School of Oriental Languages in Paris in 1925. Seven years later, he moved to London and was the professor of Persian at SOAS, then at still the School of Oriental Studies. Um, Nikitin writes not only about the Soviet Kurdology, but he says in these years, the 1930s, both in Iraq, which was still under British control partially, and in Syria, which was still mandate, uh, French mandate, there are British and French scholars who are doing the Kurdology. Uh, in, in Iraq, it was Edmonds, Cecil J. Edmonds, who among many other things, together with Taufik Wahbi, a Kurdish Iraqi military colonel, uh, started working on Latinization of the language, uh, writing a grammar of, of Sorani, and a dictionary which was published many years later. In, France, in, in Syria, something similar was done by Pierre Rondeau and uh, uh, Lesko, uh, who befriended the brothers Bedir Khan, who at that time were in exile from Turkey in Damascus, established the first uh, exile journal, not the second exile, Havar. <clears throat> and uh, these French people were together with their Kurdish counterparts also trying to develop a Latin alphabet for Kurdish. During the Second World War, one of the Bedrgaans, Kamran, uh, was at that moment in, uh, in uh, Beirut and published a Kurdish journal, Rojanubic, gave allied war propaganda. And I think it, it was as a reward for that service that after the war, he is taken to Paris and he is offered a, professor, a, a position as a lecturer of Kurdish at the School of Oriental Languages. Um, the first position, together with Lesko, the first position as a lecturer of Kurdish studies. That position has remained until now, more or less. Sometimes it became a professorship, then it was degraded, but that's one institution that has a continued presence of Kurdish studies in academia. And many people who studied in other universities in France studied their Kurdish there. Edmonds, who had been in Iraq in the 1920s and 30s, after the war was rewarded with a professorship at SOAS. He was the first professor of Kurdish at SOAS. So SOAS has a checkered history. They have had a few professors of, of Kurdish. Uh, at the time, <clears throat> Edmonds was more Kurdish civilization, Kurdish culture, the Kurdish society. He was later supported by a linguist, Mackenzie, who, be, who worked on Kurdish language. Until 75, then Mackenzie left, and for a while, 13 years long, there was nothing at SOAS, and then Philip Kreimbroek was appointed there, and then Kreimbroek left, and since then, I don't think there is a formal appointment in Kurdish language. Although there has been a presence of many students and many PhDs from SOAS, as from LSE, uh, <clears throat> in Kurdish linguistics. Anthropology seems to enter a bit later, but when you look at the first anthropologist writing on the Kurds, Edmund Leach and uh, Frederick Barth, the Norwegian, both were affiliated with this school. In the late 30s, Edmund Leach did research in Iraqi Kurdistan, which was still under British control. In the early 50s, Frederick Barth went there, wrote on the Jaff and the Hamavant. Uh, also, thanks to the fact that the country was still pro-British and available for research by uh, by British people, by, by Europeans. Uh, both of them considered their work on the Kurds as failures. Bart submitted his book as a dissertation to Edmund Leach and it was rejected. He never got his PhD here. Although his book is a classic. I think it it's, must be translated into Sorani, isn't it? I don't know. Uh, both of these guys later went on to become very famous anthropologists. Edmund Leach is a big name in anthropology because of his work on Ceylon and on Burma. 
And Frederick Bott did great work in uh, Swat in northern Pakistan, and later in New, New Guinea and Bali and many other countries. Famous anthropologists who had worked among the Kurds but never went back to Kurdistan, perhaps were a bit disappointed in their early work. None of their students ever touched the Kurds. So, no, there was another anthropologist working on women. She, was, she joined an archaeological expedition in, in Iraq in the 1950s. She wanted to study the Kurds, but, but it was very difficult for a woman to study the Kurds. So she only studied Kurdish women. She was not a feminist. She is not engaged, she does not engage in explicit gender analysis. It's just because she couldn't speak to anyone else but women. She writes about Kurdish women and she thinks Kurdish women's life is like it has been for thousands of years. It's, it's a rather unreflected work. And she too later wrote many other things or other societies no longer on women. And she never had a student working on the Kurds. So it's strange. There has been some attempts to start anthropological work, but no one followed up. And then after 1958, Iraq was closed to foreign researchers. And a few Germans then start work in Turkey, which in the 1950s was relatively liberal. There was a Democratic Party pro-Western government. So some Germans got research permits to do geographical or anthropological research, Wolfgang Hütterot and Wolfgang Rudolf, uh, about which they wrote. But they too became professors, became famous, but none of their students touched the Kurds. So the anthropology, there's no continuity in anthropology. Uh, the 1958 coup is in many ways a watershed in Kurdish studies. I hope I'm going to get to the end. Yeah, well, it, 1958 also ushers in the beginning of the Kurdish uprising in Iraq. And uh, after the Kurdish uprising in 1970, there's an agreement, the first agreement between the central government and the Kurds in which autonomy is recognized and in which, among many other things, a Kurdish Academy of Sciences, the Kori Sanyari Kurt, is established, which starts publishing. Uh, more important, I think it started earlier, after 1958, the various governments have rather good relations, especially the first, the Qasim government has good relations with the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union offers scholarships to students from Iraq. And many Kurds study in the Soviet Union, are educated in the Soviet approach into Kurdish studies, and then return after 1970 and become active in the Kurdish academy. And there is, for the first time, a transplantation of this one institutionalized form of Kurdish studies from Leningrad and Moscow to Baghdad. So from then on, you, you can say there is a, a, a school of Kurdish studies whose actors are all Kurds, uh, which is inspired by, or this is like a continuation of the Soviet school. But like many things in Iraq, they were cut short uh, soon uh, after the, I think in this case in 78, or perhaps even earlier, the, uh, the academy was turned into a branch of the of the Iraqi Academy and gradually the Kurdish scholars that still exist are marginalized. And for us in the outside, it is no longer possible to see what they have, what they, what they do. They, they remain isolated from their colleagues in other parts of the world. The, the rise of the Kurdish movement in Kurdistan also created a new interest in a different subject, no longer in language and history, but in politics. So it's for the first time you see political scientists engaged in this Kurdish problem. Jean-Pierre Venot in France in the 60s does research in Iraqi Kurdistan. Ismet Sharif Wanli is a historian, sociologist who did his PhD in, uh, in Switzerland. And Shafiq Azaz, an Iraqi Kurd, does a PhD also on the uh, Iraqi Kurdish movement in Washington, D.C. Ferhat Ibrahim, a bit later, does a PhD in political science, again, on the Barzani-led movement uh, in Berlin. Uh, starting a school of political science, it is a, a German tradition of studying Kurdish from political science perspective. I really wanted to say a few nice things about Turkey. There's been no, many things are wrong in Turkey. And it, it is so, so surprising that the country that presently produces the largest output in Kurdish studies is at the same time Turkey. 
it is perhaps not exactly the same range that we find here in this conference, but uh, there are many interesting, important things being produced in Turkey, even by people who have not yet, some of them who were already producing are now here, but others who have stayed behind and who are less perhaps uh, in, in Turkey, continue to produce. And there is, like <clears throat> my friends from Iraq always think that the, the most important Kurdish lit literature is what started in the 19th or perhaps 18th century in the South. There was long ago uh, Ahmadi Ghani, but in the past decades, uh, the scholars in, in Turkey have shown that there is an enormous amount of literature which was invisible because it was it continued to be reproduced in the Arabic script. And who in Turkey knew the Arabic script? Not only the Kemalists did not read it, the anti-Kemalists didn't read it. I mean, Kurdish activists were almost as suspicious or as disdainful of Islam as the Kemalists. Uh, so from those Kurds who are more steeped in the Muslim tradition, we find they, they have now taken the initiative publishing many things that completely change our view of the history of Kurdish literature, Kurdish, the existence of a Kurdish literature, expression in Kurdish. Uh, Kurdish has become much less of an oral language, and it's seen that there is, has been a long continued tradition of vernacular Kurdish writing. But most important is Turkey is the repression. The repression has produced a lot of scholarship. Uh, it starts with the DDKO. You may remember 67, 68, there's the revolutionary hearts of, for the culture of the East, uh, which was still the common euphemism for Kurdistan, the East. Uh, people organized cultural evenings. Uh, they were all arrested after the military coup. Everyone who had organized it was put in jail. There were, there were trials. Before those trials, there was a Kurdish literature on the Kurds, but most of it was secret. There have been intelligence reports on the Kurds, which are often very detailed. There is a literature starting with Zia Gökalp's work on the tribes, which is really worth reading because he was a good observer. He's an interesting analyst. Uh, the, most of the literature is policy-oriented. How do we prevent the Kurds being dangerous? How do we prevent separatism? How do we turn them into proper Kurdish, uh, Turkish citizens? And so on. Uh, this literature was used by the public prosecutors in the trial against these Kurdish activists. And the Kurdish activists had to defend themselves against this sort of scholarly-sounding arguments. And they did this with scholarly essays. If you read the Dava Doshalare of the 1980s trials, especially, it, it's amazing that oh no, it's the 1970s trials. The people produce very serious historical arguments. They, they find sources to counter the, the, the public discourse of the Turkish state. So scholarly research in order to defend yourself against accusations from the Turkish state was important. Many people had to flee Turkey. Uh, we have seen many waves of, of, of refugees. After 1970, I remember after the coup in 71, three refugees came to my country. They became very close friends and they helped, they inspired my work very much, but it was only three people. After 1980, uh, many thousands of people came. Uh, they started coming already before 1980. Uh, many people who have been active in Kurdish organizations fled to Sweden, which at that time was the most friendly, the most receptive country for political refugees. And all these politicians, they turned themselves into Kurdish intellectuals. They started developing Kurdish studies in Sweden, publishing in, in Swedish and in Turkish first, later in Kurdish. They started developing Kurdish as an academic language. Kurdish as an academic language owes... A debt of gratitude to the Turkish state who expelled these people and to the Swedish state who had multicultural policies enabling these people to publish their work. I see that my time is almost up. I had wanted to say more about how Kurds became more actively involved in Kurdish studies, how we see that in the beginning there is always this imperial, almost colonial relationship between the person who studies and the person who, are, who is studied. The person who is studied is represented because he is an informant. He is perhaps even a friend, he is a guide, but he is not the one who gets the credit for the writing. 
Now, gradually we see a shift. Uh, in, in, in Turkish-Kurdish circles, you see the shift occurring already, but this is refugees. And I think the wave of refugees that comes after that, the wave of the mid-90s, mid when people flee from the struggle between the two parties in the South, or when they, they flee from the dirty war in the North, those people were perhaps not, many of them were not educated in university, but several arriving in Europe, go through university and start contributing to Kurdish studies. There's a more important wave, most, the most recent wave, I think after the end of the peace process in 2013. I hope many people do not feel that I do not speak about that specific case, but 2015 is an important year because then we see I think I recognize several faces who come from that wave of of of, of uh, flight from Turkey or, or the need to, to leave Turkey. Uh, having had already an education in Turkey, finding here the possibility of focusing perhaps more than they would have done in Turkey on specific Kurdish issues. And I think these people have been taking an important part in, in defining the research agenda. Uh, I, I will go to my last word about the institutionalization. Uh, Kurdish studies have been weakly institutionalized. I've mentioned the Institute in Paris that has some continuous language learning. There's a few institutes in, in Paris that, where many people have carried out PhDs that are Kurds among the teaching staff, but they do not have Kurdish studies, but they have studies on political science and sociology. Um, here in London, there is some SOAS and LSE, and Exeter now has, a, has a, a department of Kurdish studies, which I do not know how strongly based it is. It depends on funding from the Southern Kurdistan, I gather. Uh, in the absence of such support for area studies, uh, area studies anywhere is in decline anywhere, but in the absence of such support for air, Kurdish area studies in universities, the Kurdish diaspora has started playing an increasingly active role. In 1983, Kurdish intellectuals living in Europe, and many of them associated, affiliated with universities, established the Kurdish Institute of Paris, which has been funded partly by the French Socialist Party, and later occasionally also by the Kurdish regional government of Iraq, uh, which has a program of scholarships. Numerous scholars, there must be hundreds, more than a hundred, perhaps hundreds of scholars who have been able to carry out an MA thesis or PhD research on, in Kurdish studies with the support from this uh, institute. Another in new institution, satellite television, it's so amazing. You don't need a territory in order to have some form of sovereignty. I mean, Amir Hassanpour has a beautiful article, the first article on MET TV, he calls it sovereignty in the air. Uh, Kurds have become transnational. Uh, Kurdish identity is no longer intimately tied to a specific territory. You can be very Kurdish and with your laptop, you can be Kurdish anywhere in the world, right? Uh, internet has been facilitating. And I think the most important, in my view, the most important initiative that is an alternative to traditional academic uh, institutionalization is the Kurdish Studies Network which was established by Velad Saidan, the owner and a few friends in 2009 and still exists. And I guess many of you must be members of, I hope everyone is a member of that network. It has been very helpful in connecting people. You can ask a question and usually you get many useful answers. Uh, after four years, Velad felt confident enough that this network could be expanded and become more material in the form of an actual journal called Kurdish Studies. And I have the honor of having been appointed the editor-in-chief, which does not mean it's my journal. It's just I'm on the masthead. But uh, it has been an important, in my view, a very important venue for research on, on Kurdish studies. And the very fact that you have a journal that has continuity, and that is a visible embodiment of what Kurdish studies is, of all the various approaches, and where we make an effort not to silence any voices is, I think, a very important one. Uh, most of you may know that there is a problem with this journal. Uh, everything went well until sometime last year. 
Uh, the first 10 volumes are really, it's again, the question is who owns Kurdish studies and who defines what Kurdish studies is. And suddenly we, remember, we found out that the journal was no longer owned. We had never defined what ownership was. And then someone who thought he owned it, sold it to someone who thought that a journal could be money earning if you let people pay for getting published instead of having a proper peer review. So the same website is still there. You can access the old issues of the journal, which are still the same. And I think it's that's reliable, but be aware of anything that published after volume 10, number two. Uh, fortunately, we have meanwhile find another host or perhaps owner in one of the publishers being here, Brill Publishers. Like several publishers, Brill sees that Kurdish studies is something that has a future. They want to invest in it. Uh, well, one, one example that they wanted to make, Cambridge. Cambridge has a history of Islam, a history of Iran, a history of India, and they have a history of the Kurds. I mean, how can you prove in Britain that the Kurds are really a serious subject? I mean, there is a Cambridge history of them. It's a, uh, now, there are ser Kurdish series by all these publishers who are here, and a few who are not here. Um, we will soon, and I hope this year, have the first issue of the slightly renamed Kurdish Studies Journal, which will be headed by the same editors. Uh, for the time being, we would like to invite all of you to send your papers, especially if you have a very good paper, uh, to send it to us. You cannot send it to the website yet. You cannot send it to the website kurdishstudies.net because that's the one over which we no longer have control. It's like it's been hacked, right? Uh, but Marlene Schaefer is here. Marlene used to be the managing editor, and I am here. You can send it to either of us, and we would really like, we would love to have another, a, a long and lasting series of good articles, scholarly articles in the subject of Kurdish studies. Thank you for listening to me, Solen. Thank you for allowing me to speak a bit longer than planned, but Okay. Thanks. Thank you so much, Martin. Um, I mean, I wish we had more time to listen to you. And it was just a fascinating journey of the history of the evolution of Kurdish studies. You know, you took us through a massive amount of time, more than a century, in just like 25, 30 minutes. Uh, with such amazing, fascinating detail, um, spanning many geographies, including Europe. Thank you so much for that. Um, um, I want to open the session for questions uh, for Martin. Um, anyone, if you have questions, please raise your hands. We have a couple there. You want to go ahead? I think there is a, is there a mic? There, if you just turn on the mic in front of you or close to you. I think you can hear me now. I just would like to start from the, um, what Martin mentioned the last about the Kurdish uh, studies journal. Um, I've been following it and now it has like the third owner. They keep selling it to a, like a new company and now it's in Hong Kong. So, uh, <laughs> so I was wondering whether, like, isn't there like any Kurdish business person, like, uh, you know, politicians who can just purchase it and give it back to uh, editors instead of like starting something new? Or isn't there like that financial support? Because there are many Kurdish business people around the world who are successful, and I'm sure would have enough money to just purchase it and, you know, and the uh, journey of the journal around the world and bring it back to uh, your own control thank you well I, I i cannot really give you an answer we have brill has uh, attempted to approach the new owner i have attempted to approach them through the previous owner several times but they do not respond and uh, i think they may by now matters of prestige may also be involved uh, so i think we prefer to let the journal just bleed to death and I mean, as long as everyone sees that the 
editorial board and the editorial advisory board that was there in the original journal will be with the one that is now renamed Kurdish Studies Journal. Uh, we hope that there will be no mis no one will mistake the uh, perhaps uh, one or two years that they try to earn money by having poor academics uh, pay for being published. Uh, I don't think it, will, it may last. They might not be interested in selling anyway. I saw, I think in the first round there was, a, and then there was a hand in the front as well. Shall we take those questions together and then we'll take another round of yeah. questions. I need to press it then. Okay, thank you, Martin. It was a great presentation. Um, I'm curious to know more about uh, your observations of the uh, new scholarship in Kurdish studies, mostly produced by scholars of Kurdish origin, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the last 20, 25 years. What are the differences that you observe in comparison to the scholarship that have been produced in previous decades? And what kind of challenges do you think we have. Thank you. Let's take the other question as well in the front and then if it's okay if you could answer two questions together Martin. Yes, thanks very much Martin. Um, Martin has been my supervisors for my master's thesis so I know him a really long way back and back then I did it on Kurdish women's movement and what I, what I thought was missing today in your presentation Martin was obviously one of the key development maybe for gender studies scholars was the establishment of Kurdish gender studies network a couple of years ago so um, and also I mean, we can see there are so many uh, female participants and scholars, mm -hmm. and they contribute immensely to Kurdish studies. Um, but it is a problem that we are we are invisible and um, in platforms like this. So sometimes I wonder whether it's time to not just establish a Kurdish gender studies network, but also a Kurdish gender studies conference, you know, just to um, make our standpoint clear and strengthen, you know, for young, other young scholars to come forward. So I think that's uh, missing. The voices of women and gender studies scholars goes missing in a general uh, setting like this. So. Well, I have no issue with that, Naja, as you know. Uh, were you at the very first Kurdish Women's Studies Conference in Berlin? I suppose you were there, right? Uh, and since that conference may not only have many more women become involved, may I sometimes wonder, there seem to be more Kurdish women in women's studies, in, in Kurdish studies, than men. Uh, and that is true for various other disciplines. I think Marlene, is it the case that in anthropology you find also more women than men? Is that because men tend to focus on specializations with which you can earn money, perhaps, or power? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it is striking that there. Uh, I once made a tabulation of, of publications, and until, say, 19. 80, you find hardly any publications by women. There are a few. There's a few Soviet scholars who are female. Joyce Blow is uh, a professor, even. Uh, uh, there's this Harald Hansen, the museum, the anthropologist who wrote about Kurdish women in Iraq. But there's not very much. Gender studies did not yet seem to exist uh, in Kurdish studies. And it was not yet a major subject in academia as such. And I think the, 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 the conference uh, must, that must have been in 1980, 1997 in Berlin, that was for Kurdish studies, the onset. It was the first time that it was gender, gender was explicitly addressed as, as, as an issue. And since then, I think it has generally been recognized as an important issue. And certainly, if I may speak on behalf of the editorial board, yes, we consider it an important issue. We do not want to silence any voices. But we are certainly happy to hear many different voices. Women are not all speaking in the same voice, I suppose. Uh, and uh, we would be open to many different voices. 
Mashuk, what is... So the, the one thing that is, of course, there is that many of the young people of Kurdish background uh, are women, that was mentioned, is another thing that many people of Kurdish background are more familiar with Kurdish culture and come to the study with a richer appreciation of the various dimensions of the literature, but also of the history and knowledge. They come with often a, a rich reservoir of knowledge of oral tradition, which they can then bring to bear on the interpretation of written sources. Um, I think she is not here, so I can praise her. I think the recent book by Nilay Özok Gündoğan on the, uh, the, the, the Kurdish elites of Palu is a, a, a milestone in Ottoman studies, I think. It is very good work. Uh, perhaps because the AKP government is a neo-Ottoman government, they look very favorably on Ottoman studies. And among the studies that flourish in Turkey, Ottoman studies is well represented. And I think precisely people of Kurdish background who do research on the Ottoman archives may be more interesting research or may understand better what they are writing about than people who have come from abroad like myself. I think I understand a lot now because I have had so many Kurdish friends like yourself, but uh, Still, I, I would need my friends. I cannot do this by myself. And many Kurds, of course, come with a lot of, perhaps not, 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 not defined, not made, not made explicit foreknowledge that is helpful in interpreting. That knowledge, of course, also implies many prejudices. You may be blind for certain things because you are too familiar with them. Very much. Let's take another round of questions. I see one hand here, one there. Any more? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so I would like to ask a question about the ethics of research. And you just mentioned the case of archives. And as we know, um, the, um, the practice of archiving can be very powerful and very liberating at some times, but it can also be very violent, um, especially if it's state driven. And so I was just wondering, also keeping in mind the oral practices of the Kurdish people and also the, the, the aim to kind of like recreate the dignity that has been taken away by so much colonialism. Um, what, do you, what do you think about um, when, like, what do you think about archiving and what, what do you think when it is part, like, when it is good, when it is not so good, and how can we, um, like, think the scholar and the scholarship together and that's a, that's a very ethical way of approaching academia and also um, Kurdish life and, and practice. Thank you. Uh, Marcus, so I have a question about um, for a group of people like us, uh, it was also Kurdish and also activist. And we have been attacked and criticized by so many groups, so many people for being so active <laughs> and scholar. And it came to such a stage that we have been undermined, our scholarly works have been undermined just because, for instance, myself, I write for those with Portica. I usually appear as media haber, but I'm almost everywhere. I go to Rapid Transistor quite often. If there's a rally, I go there as well. But I write academic articles, and one of my books will be published by Argo Terms. But I'm still having, and me and some other people have been facing this issue and over and over again. So you as a scholar for many, many decades, do you think there should be a boundary between just being a scholar or being active scholar? Is there such a thing of like being an independent, objective scholar? Should we be objective in the first place? Thank you. Thank you. Two great questions. Um, so let's cut and let's go for the next round. I, I don't, I won't forget you. Martin, over to you. Yeah, uh, there was, you were going to do three questions? Let's do two. Okay. Yeah, well, I think the archiving question is very important. I, I was speaking about research in the Ottoman archives. The Ottoman state and the present Turkish state has this tremendous archiving instinct. I mean, everything is kept. And the, 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 the archives are extremely rich sources of information. But your question is about archiving of the Kurdish society. Do the Kurds, because the Kurds don't have a state, they don't have a national archive. Is there something that can replace a national archive, that can function as an archive for the Kurds? Uh, 
This has been a question the Kurdish movement has been asking for many years. In a sense, the Kurdish Institute in Paris functions for some of the movements, not for all, as an archive. Uh, they have archives of people who have worked in Kurdistan, like the French political scientists who worked in Syria gave their personal archives to the Institute. Uh, they want to collect more archives. There is archiving in Slemani. The Jean uh, Institute has the personal archives of Kurdish intellectuals. And whatever happens in Iraq, it seems that for the time being, that archive will be safe. So it's a, a good place. But it's especially people from Turkey and the diaspora who are wondering where can we archive our activities. Um, in Amsterdam, there is a place called the International Institute of Social History, which has the manuscripts of Karl Marx and manuscripts of Bakunin and the archive of the Soviet Communist Party and many and the Turkish Communist Party and many other archives. And they have been interested in collecting archives of Kurdish movements. Some Kurdish movements in Europe, including PUK and PKK, not the central PKK, but PKK-affiliated movements have donated some of their materials, their archives, I don't suppose everything, to that institute. It's an institute that is open. You can donate an archive. You can say it has to be closed for the next 30 years or 100 years. Uh, there is an alternative. It is objective. It is financed by the Academy of Sciences of the Netherlands. So it is the, Netherlands, the Dutch state. But the Kurds would have like, of course, like to have their own archive. Now, an archive can be just a website. All documents can be scanned and put on a large website. And as long as the website is not hacked and people are not going to change your archives, that might be an alternative. But yes, it remains a problem as long as there is not a, the, the Kurds in Turkey or the Kurds of the diaspora do not have access to a state or some, some form of control of, say, you cannot be certain of archive. But I, the, the importance of archiving, of keeping things alive and making them accessible to the younger generation is very important. Um, can you be objective as a scholar? Well, I myself came to scholarship also. I mean, I did something entirely different and I liked traveling and I grew up in the 1960s uh, when most students were involved in uh, solidarity movements with third world liberation movements. And my solidarity was initially with the left in Turkey. And then after 1971, uh, I realized there is a man called Beşikçi and there's a man called Mehmet Emin Bozarslan who are persecuted for things they have written about the Kurds. And so my interest shifted towards specifically the non-representation of the Kurds. And that's a bit how my interest in Kurdish studies emerged. Uh, yet, I have always tried to be independent of any political movement. I never wanted to be a fellow traveler. And I think a scholar should never, 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 never be a fellow traveler. Remain your independence. Solidarity, sympathy, okay. But uh, don't let them pull the strings on you. Don't become a puppet. It's, it's sometimes a difficult balance. And in, if you're in a precarious situation, you're caught between the state and a movement, it may, you, you may have to emigrate in order to find a way to define your position independently. Yeah, thank you. I'll try to use uh, the microphone. Um, <clears throat> okay, so um, my question is about um, decolonizing. Uh, so it's a bit related to the previous question as well in the sense that um, there has been in scholarship, especially in social sciences, like uh, this decolonizing move in recent uh, years, where like certain disciplines, uh, people within disciplines, they search for uh, like colonial legacies uh, and continuities within their disciplines mm. and uh, try to work against them. Um, and so, uh, do you see a potential in Kurdish studies to be a sort of, um, maybe perhaps challenging even or taking part in this movement uh, due to the such a long decolonizing uh, practical history in Kurdistan and now when there is a lot of Kurdish origin and Kurdish uh, and people of Kurdistan and Kurdish people outside of Kurdistan 
um, uh, being scholars within Kurdish studies with that historical experience that shapes subjectivities of people uh, you know, so many decades of uh, actual decolonial struggles that are still ongoing, um, opposed to some um, some struggles that uh, change the fronts, let's say, uh, in um, in countries that see themselves as decolonized now. Um, so, um, yeah, do you see that there is a potential or that there is an engagement within Kurdish studies with this uh, decolonizing movement in academia, which for me, it always seems too detached from some real decolonizing movements, you know. So, yeah, if you have an opinion on that. Yeah, that's an excellent question and also one that is very relevant to discussions among Kurds and among Kurdish scholars. Yeah, I said Kurdish studies, Kurdology started as an imperial discipline and was serving the, the interests of, of, of great states. And uh, obviously, Kurds needed to, there is Kurds want to liberate themselves from imperial control. Later, the discourse in the 1970s in the in, in, in Kurdish movement, the discourse was that the colonial powers are no longer Britain and Russia and France, but it is Turkey and Iran and Iraq and Syria. We have to decolonize ourselves from those occupying countries or bourgeoisies of these occupying countries uh, when you give a class dimension to the colonization. Uh, the current discourse about colonialism is different again, I see. Uh, at a very simple level, you could say that when Kurds become not only objects to be studied, but position themselves as subjects studying their own society, that is definitely a form of decolonization. But then if you look at who is positioning themselves and speaking for the Kurds, uh, Sometimes I wonder, do we see, as you see in the, in the post-colonial school of thought and in the uh, 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 subaltern studies uh, school of thought, don't we see the replacement of one elite that was white by an elite that is slightly colored? And don't the ones below remain the same below? Uh, how liberating and how equalizing is this decolonial discourse i think it's a question you have to come it is not a question to be to be answered once for all because the struggle will continue there will always be new people trying to establish their authority their authority as landlords or tribal chieftains or their authority as leading intellectuals uh, imperialism or colonialism is also controlling your minds. I mean, and we have to continue trying to keep our mind free from influences that we do not want. So I, I have no answer, but only to say that the struggle is one that will be continuous. It will not be. It will not be ended. It will not be completed. Uh, Martin, I have a personal question. Uh, so you started, you said that you started to work on Kurds uh, in 1971 with Bozarstan and Beşikçi. And I'm wondering, as a historian, I always am curious about how people begin their research. Yes. Do you remember when was the first day, year, location? Um, how, how did you start your research? Um, just a personal experience. Uh, in 1967, I was a, a, a sort of hippie, a hitchhiker. Um, I traveled to, uh, I hitchhiked to, to Tehran, and then I, I had little money. So I heard that I could sell blood in Kuwait. So I went to Kuwait to sell blood, to, uh, for, with which I could live for another month. Mm -hmm. And then I... In Tehran, I had requested a visa for Iraq, but they rejected it. It was 1967, the year of the war between Israel and the Arabs. My country, the Netherlands, was considered pro-Israeli. But coming back from Kuwait, I was in Khoram Shah, there was an Iraqi consulate, and they gave me a visa. So I traveled to Baghdad, and I was really, you know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't speak any of the languages. I had learned a little bit Persian, but I was sitting in the shade in the, in the morning. It was very... Baghdad was so hot, 
45 degrees centigrade. And I went, and suddenly there's a big man standing in front of me and he says, hey, what are you doing here? And he uh, picks me up, he says, we need a shave. He takes me to a barber and uh, he says, well, you know, I'm a Kurd. Now I've heard about the Kurds. He said, my relatives live in the mountains and they're fighting against the government. And I think that was one moment when I thought, well, how fascinating is that? <laughs> So I knew about the Kurds, and I knew that the Kurds had problems. I knew that the Kurds had problems in Turkey, of course. Uh, but uh, I, had, I knew even before 1971, I knew about Bosarslan's book. Uh, I had not seen it yet, but I had heard about it, and I heard about Beshikci. And I think their trials, in fact, the fact Beshikci was sentenced to 13 years imprisonment for writing a book, which was a sociological book on the Kurds. So I say, if you want to do anything academic that is relevant. That must be writing a book on the Kurds. They would not send anyone to jail for a book that is not relevant. So I think that those two moments were very important in making me decide, well, perhaps I was, then, I was a mathematics student and I took courses in anthropology on the side. And I said, well, perhaps I should try to become an anthropologist. And I thought of it as something just one of these things I do in my life, and then I go on and do something else. But somehow the Kurds caught on, and I kept stuck in Kurdish studies. Thank you, Martin. Um, I think we will have to end here because it's quarter past five. Yeah. Thank you, Martin, for coming here and sharing with us. It was a great uh, pleasure.